1: and welcome back to Mads World. I'm your host Mads and I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. If you have, please remember to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on your favorite listening platform and follow me on Instagram. It's at madsworld.mp3. This week I'm joined by Dr. Carolina Are. Carolina is a researcher, activist, blogger and pole dancer instructor with a TikTok following of almost 350,000 people. Her PhD focused on online abuse and conspiracy theories in conversations surrounding high-profile, unsolved criminal cases through the observation of a highly engaged and toxic subculture. She currently researches on issues surrounding online subcultures, trolling, online conspiracy theories, social media moderation and algorithm bias. During the pandemic, her TikTok and blog blew up, following a pole dancing video of hers going viral and then being deleted due to censorship rules. Up next, you'll hear our chat about pole dancing culture and stigma, gendered censorship on social media, and the moderation of nudity and sexuality on both TikTok and Instagram. Hi, Carolina. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Just
2: recovering from a very intense night of teaching, but other than that, okay. (laughs) How
1: about you? Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Let's jump into our speed date question round so all of our listeners can learn a bit more about you. So can you tell me a bit more about the work that you do with your blog, Blogger on poll, and your TikTok as well, which has blown up over the last year?
2: Sure. Um, thank you. Um, so I'm uh, I'm a pole dancing academic and an activist and a blogger. Uh, and an instructor so basically I'm wearing multiple hats at the time at the moment which is um, a bit exhausting but nice so with um, the blog I've used it to just document my whole journey from when I first started as a complete beginner in Australia uh, to mm. now, where I'm a professionally trained and certified pole instructor, and I use the blog to talk about issues revolving around the pole industry, but also feminism, uh, body positivity, mental health, and stuff like that. And basically, As a pole dance instructor, I am censored a lot by social media platforms. So the Mm -hmm. blog and my social media channels have become a bit of an activist tool to inform my followers and my audiences and and my network really about what's going on with tech censorship of nudity. And this links with my PhD, which I finished quite recently which was about online moderation and particularly online abuse. But because the um, theory you use to conceptualize online abuse is very similar to the one you will use for censorship, I found myself Mm -hmm. in this unique position of being able to talk about censorship of nudity from the position of both a researcher, so an expert, but also someone who actually feels um, censorship on her skin. So that way I can kind of Bust, um, some myths about censorship and nudity being just harmful and actually being, you know, a form of self expression and freedom of speech that is currently being, um, yeah, censored and curtailed by social media. And my TikTok was part of that. Um, censorship started on Instagram, but then because it seemed easier to grow on TikTok, I got a TikTok. And yes, my TikTok did blow up, but at the same time, I got my profile deleted four times in 2021 Ugh. just
1: because yeah. <laughs>
2: I was showing my body. So it's a bit of a double-edged um, sword.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting position to find yourself in being on both sides of that. So being an expert and um, experiencing it firsthand, I think not a lot of people would be in that situation. So it's it's really interesting and really cool.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit weird. Like it's very frustrating because I know where this all comes from. It's like, political Mm -hmm. agendas that are more interested in censoring nudity and bodies and sex and sex work as opposed to I don't know far-right extremism for instance Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make it any less frustrating because I still see it happen on my skin even if I know what's going on and and I think Mm -hmm. like I'm I'm in a good position because of that because there are a lot of myths surrounding online content that depicts nude bodies and it's often like oh won't somebody think of the children these are probably <laughs> people that are being exploited this is so bad a child shouldn't be seeing this and I'm kind of like where are the parents like of course there there is so much mm. content on social media that it's difficult to prevent a child from seeing everything but it's mm. just such a moral panic because there is so much harmful content, which doesn't even compare with the sex education or the pole dancing or even the sex work advertising that mm. is online. Um, and that's actually so much more harmful. Plus, there is a difference between consensual uh, sharing of nudity, consensual sex work, being advertised online and, you know, um, image-based sexual abuse, which was formerly known as revenge porn. So it's about mm. a lack of digital lit- literacy and education that makes people panic about nudity on social media when actually things can be quite straightforward.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to getting into into that a bit more later on. In terms of getting to know you and um and how you started out with pole dancing, what do you love most about it and how did you sort of get into that industry to begin with? So,
2: I I started pole dancing really really uncritically um as, you know, someone that really enjoyed being upside down as a child because I used to do <laughs> artistic gymnastics and I liked the mm-hmm. danger of it. And um, mm-hmm. I found myself in Australia, in Sydney, um, completely alone, where I was I was retraining there with a criminology master's. And mm-hmm. I moved to Australia with, like, this idea of what my life there would be like, which was, mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I got it from, but basically I just thought that I was going to live the surfer's life and sell panini on Bondi Beach, <laughs> a food truck, and blah, blah, blah. And obviously, like, that stuff is hard to do like you need licenses and you need money Mm -hmm. and I had none of those so I realized that I completely uprooted myself from my support network which was in London to Mm. pursue a career as an academic and like just basically to live somewhere else for a while and while Mm -hmm. that was great it was challenging it's put me out of my comfort zone I was so out of my comfort zone that I was really alone and really depressed and really upset and um an acquaintance of mine was like hey my friend is doing a showcase at this whole studio do you want to come check it out and we went and watched it and it was so amazing like studios in Sydney are gorgeous they're huge and there's like 500 people at showcases and um the, the the vibe is very like um, uplifting for everybody. Uh, everybody mm. looks fierce. You perform in a group, so it looks like a girl band. It's amazing. And so I was <laughs> like, I want to try this. It, it, it seems fun, and it seems like a way to connect with people, and I can do something that I've wanted to do for a while because I was looking for adult um, gymnastic classes, and I couldn't find many. So Paul mm. seemed close to it, so I tried it. And I was immediately Amazing. hooked. Yeah, and I was immediately hooked because it requires so much strength, so much stamina, and it helps mm. you build your confidence. Like by being butt naked in a room with other butt naked <laughs> pe- people in front of a mirror, every kind of reservation that you might have about your body kind of falls through for an hour or so because it's not about the way you look. It's about, hey, can you do this trick? Can you dance to this choreo? And while I wouldn't say that pole removes the hang-ups you might have about your body, it definitely normalizes seeing yourself and also seeing yourself in a sexual way.
1: Yeah, that's so empowering.
2: It's really important, yeah, because I think we are made to kind of hide our sexuality and our sexual needs and our sexual behavior when really it's an important part of human life and and while when i started i you know i didn't know any sex workers i pole danced very uncritically and i said oh you know it's just for fitness but you mm-hmm. know when i moved to the uk i i met so many activist organizations led by sex workers i found out how many pole instructors are strippers at the same time so mm-hmm. i was able to learn from them as well. And yeah, to just realize how important, um, you know, uh, supporting and crediting sex workers for essentially founding our sport is. Um, So I think we we all have a bit of a newbie phase, phase where we're just trying to say, oh, we're doing this for fitness because we're so scared of being judged. But actually mm. it's really important that we don't do this and that we acknowledge that pole comes from stripping and we yeah. credit sex workers as, you know, the founders of our sports and the creator or the creators of an incredible art.
1: Yeah, I love I love your passion. It's really inspiring. Apart from pole dancing, what else is keeping you busy at the moment? everything
2: <laughs> <I'm>, like <laughs> exhausted but in a good way so i've I recently just had my phd graduation ceremony which was really nice um, congratulations thank that's so cool you. i'm so happy that i finally got to do it offline because i handed mm. in my thesis in february 2021 but because of covid it was so difficult to actually have a, a ceremony and now it feels like i got my closure but it also means that shit got real and I really need to find an academic job. Um, so I need to, like, I'm, I'm applying for a lot of postdoctoral researcher positions mm-hmm. or just, you know, research positions in, in a variety of universities. So that takes a lot of work. And then, yeah. you know, working on my academic papers independently, still working mm-hmm. on my blog, teaching a lot of choreos um, and, you know, just teaching Paul in general, both online online through Zoom and at my London studio, which is Aquila Pole Studio. It's not mine. It's owned by a lovely uh, pole dancer called Aquila, but it's like my home studio. It's my home. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just, uh, as I said, working on the blog, and I'm also preparing for a pole dance competition in Rome.
1: Oh, my God. That's so cool. (laughs) It's really fun, but,
2: like, it's something that I haven't done in ages because, obviously, performing opportunities were kind of shut because of the pandemic. Yes, um, of course. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole other training, because for about two years, I focused on teaching classes, which meant one minute choreographies, Mm -hmm. but a competition performance is like three minutes and a half, four minutes.
1: Wow, so yeah. I
2: need to up my stamina game again.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. That's so cool. How, um, how did the pandemic affect pole dancing? Like was obviously we couldn't, you couldn't do anything in person, but were you like teaching Zoom classes and like how did it affect, affect the sex industry in that way and, and strippers?
2: So I think strippers were obviously way more affected than yeah. recreational pole dancers or even pole instructors because obviously, you know, their workplace was shut they suddenly, from one minute to the other, they couldn't go to work. And mm. because, um, you know, so many strippers can be seen as contractors, obviously they wouldn't get the same support that, say, an office worker would get. True, Plus, yeah. considering the amount of online censorship, even those that did make it through, like, OnlyFans and stuff like that, mm. were facing consider- considerable um, censorship.
0: So luckily, a
2: variety of shows sprung up like Cyber Tees or, you know, other stuff like that in the UK where performers were tipped online. Um, yeah, if you if you ever, you know, want to interview a stripper, I really recommend like the East London Strippers Collective or, you know, um, there's um, there's Soldiers of pole in the U.S., Okay. Um, there's, there's a lot of amazing activist organizations that are doing some really important work, also the Bristol Sex Workers Collective is amazing they're fighting to keep strip clubs open in Bristol and in the UK, they're doing such important work, cool. in terms of pole dancing and how it affected um pole instructors and pole studios I think it was harder on pole studios because they obviously had the overheads of having to pay rent and stuff like that Mm. while having to pay you know maybe their employees as well Mm. for me as a freelance instructor affiliated to a studio only as a contractor Actually, I made my name during the pandemic because as someone that already had an okay following pre-pandemic, I had a lot of people asking me, oh, I wish I could come to your class, but like London is so far from me, I'm in another country. And obviously Mm. with the pandemic and everybody being confined to their houses, suddenly I had this new pool of students that I could reach. So the first lockdown was really hard for me emotionally because I was separated from my partner at the time. He's now my ex who had to isolate from his kids uh, with his kids. Um, but I, it was also both beautiful and hard for me as a pole instructor because I was suddenly teaching 10 hours a week. Instead Mm. of my two hours at the London studio I was teaching at. And it was great because I was reaching people in the US, in Australia, in Europe. But with osteopaths and massage therapists and physios being closed, I was like permanently injured without the the opportunity to stop. It was really hard. But then, you know slowly I got the hang of it and I think I'm now in a really good place because I'm affiliated to a lovely London studio but at the same time I've got my online clients so I I have a bit of variety and I can teach from the comfort of my own home so I think a lot of instructors had this opportunity open up where they they built their profile even more they launched their tutorials they launched their websites. I I started teaching um both via Zoom, so live, and selling tutorials through Buy Me a Coffee. And it's really worked for me. It's it's really nice because I'm mm. I'm a bit of an introvert, so being able to teach and then just kind of shut down in my living room has <laughs> been mm. really beneficial.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting you say you're an introvert and then, um, I mean, you do work in that industry. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that because you'd think it's such a, you know, it's an extroverted sort of activity getting on stage and performing and and everything. But yeah, I guess it's just, it just goes to show that all kinds of people can have all kinds of passions.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, like, you know, there there are all sorts of pole dancers as I'm sure Mm. there are know all sorts of sex workers as well like Mm. people with like um I don't know uh but I I personally have anxiety and sometimes depression Mm. but there's people that are like neurodivergent uh there's people with all sorts of you know experiences and backgrounds and Mm. I think performing and performing in a sexual way is such a cathartic important thing uh, Mm -hmm. because it allows us to channel an energy that we normally have to hide and that's really nice but at the same time it takes it out on you (laughs) like uh, before I perform I honestly just want to cry like every time I submit to a full competition I'm like why did I do this to myself again? <laughs> I'm like excited in the months where I'm preparing. And as soon as I, it's like a month, I, I'm like, I hate my life. Why, oh why have I done this?
1: <laughs> I've got a couple of a bit more um, off track questions, but I like to sort of oh. throw these in just because they're a bit fun. So my next question is, do you like being vulnerable or does it scare you? Oh,
2: I think both. I mean, um, I've le- I, I used to hate being vulnerable, but I think um, – this kind of, this hate towards it made it worse because it made me feel ashamed when I actually was vulnerable. So it Mm. actually made me, fight or hide my feelings so in trying to be less vulnerable i actually made myself more more vulnerable (laughs) so it didn't make much sense so i've I've done a lot of therapy so i learned how to channel my vulnerabilities and how to expose myself in different ways and i mean even going on stage is a form of vulnerability because you're sharing your vision and your body with an Mm -hmm. audience who might like it or not like it but i think you know on an emotional level I've begun being way more confident in showing my vulnerabilities to people who are deserving of it. And I'm starting to like it because when cards are on the table, there's less room for ambiguity. Mm. And I think in the end, you just get hurt less because you're not like there waiting and hoping for a person to get the hint. You're just saying things.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think you can... You can not enjoy being vulnerable, but enjoy the, the process and enjoy the, the scary, the scare and the fear and everything that it offers as well, because it is a risk and it can be, yeah, like an adrenaline rush, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and it's a growth process, you know, like you deal with a, vulner- with a type of vulnerability at some point and then um, you live and you learn and maybe next time you will be doing it better
1: yeah definitely and my final question for this section is do you believe that love and hate are similar or completely different
2: oh it's interesting um mm. I don't know I think um there's definitely an element of passion that um, mm. brings them together and I read a lot about you know abusive relationships and stuff and stuff like that because I I was in one and I think part of like maybe maybe when the love subsides a little bit, hate comes in, but hate is like a part of growth. And I think then Mm. once that hate is gone, then comes indifference. So if you're hating somebody a lot, maybe you're still feeling something, whether that's hurt, whether that's like hope or a bit of love, like, I realized that when I really, really hated people, I was still not over the relationship. And while I started being it, like completely indifferent to them while acknowledging the hurts that they'd caused me then I was toward, I was you know going towards moving on but you know it might be different for people
1: yeah, and I think it's interesting that you said, um, you know, once you move on from love, you still find yourself hating that person sometimes, and it's still it's linked to that obsession and those feelings of obsession, and and um, just you know being all consumed by something. Whereas I think the opposite of love it would probably be indifference, as you said, just because it's you know it's the opposite of obsession. You just don't you don't care
2: yeah yeah exactly because I think you know to hate somebody you need to feel really really strongly about them one way yeah. or another and and I think you know that already shows that there there is some sort of feeling still
1: yeah absolutely so in this podcast we like to do a bit of a funny date story section or like a funny sex story so I'm wondering if you have a good funny date story or experience that you wanted to share with our listeners
2: so I'm really out of the game, FYI, because uh, <laughs> I, was, I was in a relationship throughout like the pandemic mm-hmm. and I only, you know, my relationship essentially ended in September last year. So I think I'm like on a healing um, phase and like mm-hmm. I'm now over the relationship, which is great. But, That's good. you know, I'm like it's taken me a while to get back in the dating game. Um, so I'm gonna think of a story from my, you know, my more reckless days and I think love it's it. a story that really told <laughs> it's a story that really shows what it's like to date as a bi woman, but also like the issues that you have when you date as a woman.
1: So I love it. I used
2: to <laughs> I, I used to be on Tinder. I'm not mm. on dating apps anymore because I use social media for work so much that mm. just having to swipe feels like additional work. But I, I um I was on a date and I had been dating this guy. Like I think it was like the third date. And mm-hmm. he initially seemed normal. um And then so he was exactly my type. He was a musician. He had long hair. He was fun. Mm-hmm. That's my type. <laughs> oh, oh, God, we are ruined. We have been ruined by music and stuff. Yeah, because it just never worked out. But anyway, never. so I I was on the third date with him. And Mm -hmm. things had started to get really weird. I don't know if in his head he assumed, oh, third date, sex. So he was really nervous about it. So he started being really awkward but also just really brazen in a lot (laughs) of ways, like just assuming that we would have sex. And at the same time, he kept go into the bathroom and coming back, go into the bathroom and coming back. Yeah. And in my opinion, I think he was snorting cocaine or doing some sort of drugs. Yeah. And at some point he just put a hand on my shoulder and it was like, so my place or yours. And I just kind of looked at him, just being like, yeah, I think it's happening. And um, <laughs> a girl in the bar that I was at noticed that I was really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. And she just looked at me and she just pretended that she was my friend. And she was like, oh, my God, so good to see you. I love this. It's been so long. So basically what ended up ha- happening was that yeah. I ditched the guy and ended up on a date with this girl. <laughs> and. Uh, and yeah, it was really nice. I mean, not much came out of the date with a girl afterwards, but she yeah. saved me from a really awkward evening. She was really hot and it was the best outcome
1: for that night. Oh God, I love women. I love women so much. Like we just always looking out for each other.
2: <laughs> I know. And like we just, it just clicked because I think I was really yeah. visibly uncomfortable. And even worse, when I got home and this was like 20, 2014, 2015, I don't remember, something like that. So it, it was still like oyster card times where mm. you couldn't do contactless in London. Oh, yeah. And it was like, oh, I, I, you know, I don't have money on my oyster anymore. Can I stay over? And this was like a text from him at like <laughs> one. And I was like. I am so sorry, but hell no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. There. Like maybe I was mean. I don't know, but like no. out of all things, you could have asked me for money not to stay over. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah,
1: that's so weird. Someone did that to me once. They like got past midnight and they lived out of London, like out in the, you know, you had to get on like the rail. And he was like, yeah. oh, there's no more trains, so I have to stay at yours. And I was like, I'm sorry, but it's just not my problem. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. You can stay yeah. at a friend's. Yeah, so awkward. But, yeah, no, I really love that. I love that we're (laughs) always looking out for each other as women. It's so cool. So I'm really excited to get into our discussion more about the work you do. So you published an article that I read, which was fascinating, about the Instagram algorithm and how it's censoring rules harm women and harm vulnerable users versus helping online abusers to get away with with the things that they do. So can you tell me more about this and what drove you to write it?
2: Yeah, so um, the article came on the back of a conference I spoke at, which was called Algorithm for her it was organized by dr sophie bishop who is a london-based uh, no she's now sheffield-based well who's a uk academic mm. who studies algorithms as well and she gathered a variety of intersectional perspective at this amazing conference so mm-hmm. as a result she asked me to write this article and i just basically converted my presentation and my experiences into this article mm-hmm. which shows how while you're from a demographic that isn't a cisgender straight white male on social media, chances are that for one reason or the other, your content will not be shown as well to other users. So when, the, um, when Instagram apologized to poll dancers through my blog uh, about the shadow ban, I received and people in my network received so many messages from users that had nothing to do with pole dancing or with sex work. Uh, You know, people that were like bikini models or lingerie models or something like that um, saying, oh, I've been censored too. I thought I was going crazy because I just got no views and no engagement. But actually, this is what might be happening while at the same time. You know, if you look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if you look at, you know, QAnon, if you look at even the attack of on Congress in the U.S. Mm. or GamerGate, all of these scandals that involve some sort of harmful content being propelled out in the ether by social media, there's a clear discrepancy between how nudity and sex are regulated as opposed to harmful content like online abuse, conspiracy theories, misinformation. And mm. that is inherently sexist. And it's inherently, you know, it, it it just it replicates offline inequalities on social media. And my experiences on Instagram and TikTok are a case in point because I will post something, receive swathes of abusive comments, I would then be mass reported by users who think that my content shouldn't belong on those platforms. Mm-hmm. And then their online abuse isn't removed, but my profile or my content is. And I'm, I come from a really lucky um, you know, position here because I'm a poll instructor, previously a poll hobbyist, with media contacts, with tech contacts, with academic expertise. So mm-hmm. I'm a freak case. I am someone who gets covered in the media when she's censored. But a lot mm. of sex workers who don't have those contacts and who are targeted by platforms disproportionately because since Foster Sester, the exception to uh, Section 230 and thirty and thirty of the Telecommunication Act in the U.S. was published, um, essentially sex work is a target of platforms. Mm. This is because this exception was meant to reduce sex trafficking, but because platforms are afraid to get done for it and to have to pay really high fines, they are conflating consensual sex work with sex trafficking and female or you know LGBTQIA plus nudity with sex work and with sex trafficking. So this censorship is starting from a really harmful thing, sex trafficking, and trickling down to everybody harming them in the process while catching no sex traffickers. So it's basically a useless law that has done a lot of harm.
1: And in saying that you think that censorship on social media is gendered and um, just in regards to everything you've just said, what, what do you think is the main thing that's driving this in an, overarching, in an overarching perspective?
2: I think a few things. I think realistically the population of Silicon Valley is very male Mm. Um, so, um, there have been leaked memos, uh, that were passed around by Facebook employees Mm. where they were making their policies, uh, for censoring nudity in line with Victoria's secret advertising policies. And that's not law. Like, Mm. that's like a a super non-inclusive up until a while ago, um, lingerie company so why is that dictating what's acceptable on platforms and even more recently some leaked guidelines about breast cupping or grabbing which was um, made um, okay on Instagram thanks to the work of Naomi Nicholas Williams the black plus size model who was censored and campaigned against this. So basically, platforms now regulate how much grabbing is okay if you're holding your boobs. Oh, so God. it's all good stuff, you know. And then if you think about it, like I—I I mean, you're a woman on social media. I hope you haven't, but I'm sure you've received some unsolicited dick pic at some yeah, point. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry that happens to you, but because mm. you're sex positive, some people assume that you're up for it, which is yeah. what I get because I'm a pole dancer and. It might have happened to you, I don't know, but it certainly happened to me that when I report those users, nothing Mm. is done. But it's then my content dancing in a bikini around the pole within community guidelines that gets censored. So there is a huge discrepancy there. And this is what I mean when I say it's gendered. So I think partly the workforce of Silicon Valley Reflects that because then the things that they're going to think are sexual are viewed through the male gaze but i think also realistically when laws like fosta sesta that i've just mentioned are approved platforms which are a corporate company look after number one they look after their money they don't want to lose any money they don't want to lose face So they're just going to censor anything that might make them look bad, which is why I'm really worried about the approval of the online safety bill in the UK, where there's going to be a lot more restrictions around access to porn, around access to sexual content in the the UK. And if FOSTA sesta is anything to go by, it's going to trickle down to a lot of users and it's not going to be pretty.
1: And just speaking about that sort of Silicon Valley Boys Club and, you know, their own personal agenda and um, and everything like that was passed around, how do you think censorship is harsher on sex workers or nudity than something like violence or something like incel extremism or even terrorism?
2: Yeah, it's like actually, and this this is mind-boggling, but when you look at social media community guidelines – Nudity is lumped in with cannibalism, bestiality, terrorism. Uh, it's kind of like insane. It's like, insane. I had a friend, one of my friends said when I showed this to him, it was like, "Oh, you know, I, I was looking at a boob, and all of a sudden, I was making a bomb." Like it makes no sense. Yeah, There's it no makes correlation no between those harms. um I think it's just again partly. Social media replicates offline inequalities. So mm. there is sexism, there is extremism, mm. um, and therefore that's going to go on social media. Like the the age where we thought that everything that went online was cute and harmless is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I also think that um, it reflects the states of power. If society is sexist and patriarchal, of course that's going to be reflected on social media. But I also just think there is a misunderstanding with people not understanding that nudity is speech. It's a form of expression and sex work is legal in a lot of countries or forms of sex work are legal in a lot of countries so social media are over censoring and this shows where the balance of power lies because they they've got the power they've got the huge platform that has been allowed to grow exponentially so they want to keep it so of course they're going to over censor to make sure that they do keep it and um And, you know, on top of that, I think in general, social media platforms, the majority of them are based in America. And America, particularly the U.S., particularly North America, has a very Puritan and sex-negative attitude. Um, mm. You know, you see it like after performances at the Super Bowl by mm-hmm. J.Lo, lo like people being like, oh, why is she doing that when somebody thinks of the children? We see that with the way women are treated in on, on U.S. media. So, of course, that's going to be reflected in the infrastructure and in the tech infrastructure that is made over there and in the laws that regulate over so I think it's it's a mix of on, on offline bad stuff just bleeding online.
1: Mm-hmm. And following the article that you published, you yourself were then experiencing censorship on TikTok over the last year as your Instagram sort of blew up over the pandemic. And was it one particular video that was removed? And like what what was the video? And, you know, can you tell me more about that experience?
2: Yeah, so um, on on Instagram, I was mainly shadow banned for quite a long time and then um, can you just
1: quickly explain what what shadow banning is just in case anyone listening doesn't know
2: good point. I always get asked that in my papers as well. And, I, and everybody's like, what is the shadow ban? And I just keep going on and on about it. So good point. <laughs> so shadow banning is a light censorship technique, where platforms reduce the visibility of your content without notifying you that this is happening. So your content or profile aren't being deleted, they're just not being broadcasted as well to other users. And this really prevents you from finding new audiences, which is crucial for creators, for bloggers mm. and also for pole dance instructors like me because this is how I sell my classes yeah. so what's really bad about it is that you're not told so you're kind of like gaslighted into thinking that maybe it's your content that it's bad but actually mm. the platform is behind it so okay. shadow banning is something that was used against pole dancing for quite a lot of time like throughout 2019 multiple times mm. so much that then After the pole dance community and industry kind of went up in arms about it, Instagram had to to apologize to us through my blog. Um, And then, yeah, obviously not much changed afterwards, but they recognized that enough people were mad, so they apologized. So that was the most that happened on Instagram for a few years, apart from a few posts being removed or not performing very well. And then all of a sudden, in the summer of last year, I post a picture with my 92-year-old grandma, whom I'd seen for the first time since the start of the pandemic. And my profile gets deleted with no warning. Or what? Anything. Uh, and I was like, what? Like, out of all things I post, there are things with me pole dancing in a thong. There are yeah. things where I have nipple tassels and, like, my boobs are visible. And it's my grandma. true oh, so I was so confused. <laughs> so yeah. they said it was a mistake. They didn't explain what it was. But because media articles were written about me and a lot of people were mad and mm. I'm I'm a messy bitch. So I started tweeting like crazy and obviously they had to do something about it. So I still don't know what it is that triggered it. But yeah, so my profile was deleted on Instagram for a day. So that is yeah. one side. The
0: mm-hmm. other side
2: is TikTok. So I as I said before, I went on to TikTok because it was harder to grow on Instagram. So I started my TikTok in January twenty twenty. Um it was so easy to grow. Like I got one video to get to 200 and 200,000 views. And um, I went from like zero to 8,000 followers. And then the pandemic started. So I was mainly using TikTok as a form of entertainment rather than, you know, minding too much, uh, like posting on it too much. Yeah. And then um, I decided to get serious about it again. And I grew a bit more. And then, Last February, so in 2021, I posted a short video from my WAP choreography, so by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. And I joked that I was a pole dancer WAP with a PhD. (laughs) Because it was 50 (laughs) seconds and there were the hashtags and the choreo and whatever, I went viral really quickly so much that overnight, that video got about a million views
1: wow yeah and it
2: was really overwhelming because I went from about 20,000 followers which was largely manageable to about 80,000 which was very confusing and (laughs) a lot of people were hating on my content because of course won't somebody think of the children
1: yeah that's what I was going to say did you get many trolls or online hate as a result of that
2: loads loads of it yeah it was really really horrible and Mm. um these people kept abusing me in the comments, I kept reporting them, nothing was done. But Mm. they were mass reporting me. So initially, I just lost my posting privileges. So I couldn't post, I couldn't do brand partnerships either, which was obviously bad for my blog, because I make money from that stuff. And then my account was outright deleted. So at that point, a journalist Chris Stokel Walker, who's amazing, he writes so much about TikTok. I really recommend everybody looking to get into TikTok to look him up. So he took pity on me and he wrote a story about me being a freak case that researchers on this stuff get censored. So from that story, I blew up even more. And obviously my account was restored. Mm -hmm. And then I thought that was the end of it. But then April, May came and my account was deleted three times in a week. Mm. It was so frustrating. Like, I would post a video, the account would be deleted, and then Creator Support would be like, Oh, sorry, we got it wrong. Here's the account again. And then by the third time that happened, I got a notification saying, Because your account has been deleted too many times, you can't get it back. And I emailed Creator Support and I asked them what was going on. And they were like, Mm. Oh, we're sorry. As long as you um, apply, for uh, no what did what did they say as long as you post implied nudity the system is going to flag you and I was like what does that even mean you can imply I'm always naked underneath my clothes if it's about implying (laughs) then what's the criteria yeah
1: what does that even what does that even mean that's so ridiculous
2: it's just everybody could just imply that someone is naked and therefore be you know
1: flagged and it's also because it had the videos have sexual connotations to them which people like if someone's there in their bikini on the beach you know no one's reporting that content it's just those those trolls and those online haters that are that are reporting it because they get offended by it but it's the it's the same thing as you know someone posting you know a lingerie photo like someone from love island no one's reporting that that content
2: exactly and i mean i'm pretty sure that it's the combo and bikini that flags that get stuff flagged but at the same time the issue on tiktok is that people are using mass reporting as a form of feed curation which is horrible like platform infrastructure shouldn't allow that because that is that creates a really like a huge chilling effect on freedom of speech like that has happened to transgender creators as well who would go viral and then lose their profile because of anti-trans mass reporting so it's just really really flawed platform infrastructure and I did get my profile back again because Chris Walker took pity on, pity on me and tweeted the TikTok CEO so I got an apology and my profile was restored but it's just really frustrating because it's, it's a game of whack-a-mole and again I'm lucky because I'm a poll instructor and an academic and I have media contacts. But sex workers who rely on platforms to market their content are being shut out of them, shut down over and over. Like a new platform Mm. comes up. They build its user base because sex workers are responsible for the majority of traffic to a lot of of platforms and for the popularity uh, of a lot of platforms. And as soon as platforms want to appeal to more audiences, they become disposable, which is what we've seen with OnlyFans in the summer. OnlyFans wanted to appeal to a bigger user base. Mm. And of course, they were threatened by their payment providers who wanted to pull out. But, you know, the first thing that they wanted to get rid of was adult content, which made OnlyFans, by the way. So it's just a really frustrating online world to be in.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it must be so much harder as well because obviously you've had that support and um, you've sort of got this following now so that you can, you know, make make a difference. But there's just so many people out there that are making that content and don't have those platforms and that's their livelihood and that's how they make money. And, you know, it's sort of just like tough luck for them if they can't get their content back or they get their accounts back when they've been deleted. It's just such a shame.
2: It's really unfair. I mean, um, for a while I had to... Um basically be a sort of point of contact between instagram and deleted people because after i launched together with a bunch of amazing activists performers sex workers educators and stuff I launched a change.org petition in 2020 when Instagram was changing its terms of use. And that petition got to about 121,000 followers. It's still there at the moment. And um, basically, as a result, I started having meetings with Facebook policy and who obviously deal with Instagram. So for a while, I was the point of contact to get some people restored, but because this is on uns- this is not sustainable for me or for them or for anyone being a point of contact between a global you know huge platform yeah. and, and it's not users. your responsibility
1: either it's, like
2: it's nobody responsibility but the platforms, so they are launching a deleted user's support chat where mm-hmm. users will try and like you know get their profiles restored. But it's just really frustrating because as a user you're like screaming into a void and platforms have all the power. So you're kind of just like, Well, I hope I'm gonna hope for the best. But so many users rely on paying thousands to hackers within Instagram who restore their profile for money, which is really messed up.
1: What people who work at Instagram in like in the tech teams and stuff?
2: Yeah, so they're they're kind of making this I would suggest potentially illegal but and definitely not kosher side hustle of getting people restored for a lot of
1: money. Whoa, really? I had no idea about any of that. That's so interesting. Yeah,
2: Vice has written a lot about that, about how there's a whole business of hackers within companies who who restore people for money, but also people who get profiles deleted for money.
1: It's it's messed up. That is so messed up. And how do you sort of, Obviously, there's all of these like corruption issues and it's a boys club in Silicon Valley and it's just such a massive issue. But how do you envision censorship on social media working for everyone and how can it be better?
2: Mm, it's tricky. I, you know yeah. what? I I think at the moment it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm. I, I think until governments realise that these ad hoc laws like online safety bill or foster sesta or whatever – Do more harm than good, Mm -hmm. the situation is just gonna keep, you know, getting worse. And I think what needs to happen is acknowledging that social media are as much a corporate company as a civic space and a workplace for people. And until that isn't reflected in the rights and laws that govern social media, I see the situation as just worsening. But I've written Mm -hmm. a paper called A Corpo Civic Space, where I imagine social media being run according to international human rights standard standards, standards. Mm-hmm. so governments would have to make a push for that and would have to enforce those rights because you have a right as a user to know what's happening to your content like if you get kicked out of a space for no reason mm-hmm. you can actually sue places on you know discrimination grounds or whatever. While for social media, it's very hard to do that at the moment um, because platforms don't really tell you what's going on. You don't know why you're being deleted, if it's a glitch or if you've been actually discriminated.
1: And I think a lot of these laws also—they they're still separating online and offline life when they're so much more integrated than they ever have been. Like the—I mean, even with things like the metaverse and stuff coming into play, it's becoming more of a gray area. Like absolutely everything is online, but treating it like it's this—you know—separate place to real life is just silly. Like people's entire livelihoods, people's entire existence, and you know, workforce that lives online. So I think. Yeah. You're right, in that it's going to have to come from a higher-up sort of government perspective to to make a massive change. But, um, yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. It's just such a massive issue. It's like, where do you even begin? It's
2: really frustrating, and it's really mm. weird to see, like, this split between offline and online life. Particularly, you know, there have been studies showing that, for instance, um, violence against sex workers in the U.S. was massively reduced by the appearance of sites like Backpage or, Craigslist personal advertising and stuff like that. So if you know that something reduces violence, how can you take that away from people? Like yeah. it just you know it's connected to your livelihood. It's connected to your network, to your safety, to your knowledge as well. Like I mm-hmm. you know as an abusive relationship survivor, I was also able to heal thanks to all the sex education and relationship education I found online that I wasn't Mm. finding anywhere and thanks to the support network of uplifting pole dancers through Instagram and it makes me sad that people from a similar background people with a similar experience might not Mm. be getting that in the future because of censorship and bad Mm. laws and bad enforcement
1: yeah it is terrifying Oh God! yeah it's I've really enjoyed this chat. I think there's just it's just such part of such a bigger conversation. It'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward, but like I'll be scary, but um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. You've been such an amazing guest and just so intelligent and well-informed on everything. And yeah, Thank
2: you so much for having me. And, you know, one um, good outcome of the internet still being the way it is is that we found each other. So that's why I said, we could have this chat.
1: It's so true. And hopefully everyone out there can could have learned something from this chat because I know I learned so much about, yeah, your industry, which is really awesome. I hope you enjoyed my chat with the lovely Carolina. Please let me know on my Instagram. It's at madsworld.mp3 or my website, madsworld.co, if you have any stories or thoughts of your own to share. Love and elbow taps. Peace. Peace.